to come out to that. Well, we're going to continue in our study in Philippians, and um, today's title is, It's All About You. Maybe some of you are going, it's about time you figured it out, Pastor. It's all about you. Our text is Philippians chapter 1, so I would ask you to stand with me as we would read from God's Word, but first, let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for you. We thank you for your word, which is powerful. The word that can transform hearts. The word which brings somebody out of darkness and into your glorious light. Your word which raises the dead to new life in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we ask as we open your word, we sang a prayer, Lord God. Show us Christ, the preaching of your word. And do it for the sake of your glory and for the love of your saints. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the overseers and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus, of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, I will not at all be ashamed, but that but with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is better. For that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for, for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, 
so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. That is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that I saw, that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We've seen already Paul talking about community, prayer, holding people in our heart, living a manner worthy of the gospel. And the main part of our text is verse 19 to the end for today. We'll see today, resolve, request, and reminder. Again, full disclosure, two weeks in a row, I stole it right, those points right out of the outline Bible. Thank God for the outline Bible. Where Paul says this, his resolve is this. Paul is in prison for the gospel. Nothing political, nothing uprising. He's not a thief, he's not a murderer. He preached Jesus Christ. And that landed him in prison. It landed him in Caesar's household. The imperial guard is watching Paul in prison. And he says, For I know through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul says that through your prayers and the Spirit of Jesus Christ, which is the Holy Spirit, same thing, same person, not thing, person, says it's going to work out for my deliverance. The question is, what does Paul mean by deliverance? That he's going to be set free out of jail? Maybe, maybe not. I don't think he means that. I think D.A. Carson, who, by the way, D.A. Carson is, if you're like more of the intellectual um, you like the heady stuff? D.A. Carson is your man. He writes this in, in Basics for Believers, an exposition of Philippians. He says this, In this context, deliverance does not mean release from prison, but something more important. His ultimate vindication, whether in life or death. Paul knew that standing firm in the gospel, those who stand firm for the Lord Jesus Christ, in the end, will be vindicated by God himself at the great day of judgment. God says that he is going to separate the sheep from the goats. People will be vindicated. Those who love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind will be welcomed into his kingdom, and those that are not into everlasting darkness. God will vindicate his children one day. Paul says, I'm going to be vindicated one day. He says this deliverance will come through the prayers and the spirit of Jesus. He says through your prayers. Prayer matters. The question is, does prayer actually move God's hand? Can we actually make God do something through our prayers? The answer is, is no. Then why pray? Well, because probably maybe a more accurate answer would be yes and no. 
God is sovereign over the universe. He says all of our days before there even were, he's planned them out for us. He knows the beginning from the end. He is, as Hebrews tells us, the author of the ages, the author of history. He has already planned out the entire world. He even tells us, God is gracious enough to tell us in his book how the world's even going to end. Right? There were, we shouldn't be afraid. We know the end. But does prayer, specific prayer, move God's hands, so to speak, figuratively speaking, in our situation? Well, prayer matters. God does work through prayer. We are to pray for one another. Paul says your prayers are needed. If prayer didn't work, Paul wouldn't ask for it. Jesus himself was a man of prayer. In the garden, we know his his deepest prayer, right? A simple prayer. If possible, remove this cup from me. But not my will, but your will be done. Prayer really does matter. It really does affect things. Because when we say it doesn't move the hand of God, that's from God's perspective. God sees the beginning from the end. I don't see that, nor do you. And so we are to pray for one another. And we ask God to, to just to put it in, in street language, God, I need you to come through. I need you to act. I need you to show up today. And God does through the faithful prayers of people. Listen to what Paul says about prayer to the church in Corinth. In his affliction, Paul is in affliction. He's in despair of life. This is what he says. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Well, there you go. Anyone will tell you that Paul believed in a prosperity gospel of health and wealth should be shot right there. Matter of fact, it should be shot on the person of Jesus Christ because he was poor and he had no home. And he was a man of suffering acquainted with grief. He says, indeed, we felt that we'd received the sentence of death. Good times, Paul. But that was to make us not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That's another way we were relying on God through prayer. He delivered us from such deadly peril, and He will deliver us, again, the ultimate vindication. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Prayer matters. You pray for one another. Ask God to deliver people, to heal people, praying that God would heal Dom. The question is, do we really believe God heals? Or do we say, God healed Dom, and then, hey, Dom, go to the doctor. No, Dom, go to the doctor. Be smart, be wise. But do we trust that God can really heal? What kind of faith do we really have in, our prayer, in prayer is the question. Do I really believe that God can come through. Do I really believe that God can do the miraculous? Do I really believe that God will rescue and save? Do I really believe that God will provide? I don't ask in faith. The Bible says don't expect to get. 
Prayer matters. The prayer given in faith matters. Therefore, James says this, Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. We can see that right there, James tells us that confession of sin goes with prayer. He says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And then he goes on to tell us about, well, before they tells us about the prayer of Elisha, who prayed that it would rain. Why did Elisha pray that it would rain? Elisha, three years earlier, told King Ahab, there's, there's going to be no rain. It's not going to rain. Why did he say that? Because God said, if you turn away from me, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to make the heavens like iron. There's going to be no rain. And then when the king repented after, after uh, Elisha had killed the prophets of Baal and all that, and they were beginning a rival, he says, okay, God, he prayed that God would now open up the heavens. See, God had already determined what he's going to do, yet it was through the prayer of Elisha saying, God, this is what you promised. Would you do it that it happened? Does that make sense? Did I say it correctly? I hope I did. Prayer matters. Prayer works. Just because God is completely sovereign over the universe, and He is, should not be a reason for the lack of prayer. He says also through prayer and through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. God has his plan for Paul. God, through the Spirit of Jesus Christ, is going to do what he promised to do because no one, no thing, whether in heaven or on earth, angels nor demons nor life or death can stand against the Spirit of Jesus Christ. God is going to do what he's promised he's going to do. He will see you to the end. R. Kent Hughes says it this way, Thus, as Paul sat in Roman custody, he was confident that as the Philippians prayed, fresh supplies of the Spirit of Jesus Christ would be poured into his heart, empowering him for every trial and securing his ultimate deliverance. I am confident that I have any kind of success in the pulpit because you are praying that God would use me. I'm telling you, I rely on that. If it was left up to me, if you didn't pray for me, forget it. You need to pray that God would make himself known. Pray for your Sunday school teachers. Pray for your elders and your deacons. That God, the fresh supplies of the Spirit of Jesus would be poured into our hearts. It's to your betterment. That it happens. We pray the same for you. That, it, that as God's word is preached, that the spirit of Jesus would illumine his word in your heart so that you, together with the saints, would understand the depth, the breadth, the height of the love of God for you. This is how God works in this world. Through prayer. Through the spirit of Jesus Christ. It says here that these prayers and the Spirit of Jesus would lead to Paul's ultimate vindication by God in the last day. 
Paul says this in verse 20, he says, As is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul says, your prayers, it's my eager expectation because you're praying for me and because of the Spirit of Christ that this is what you can, in essence, this is what he's saying, you can pray for me, that I, whether in life or death, Christ would be honored in my body. See, Paul was confident not in himself, but in the prayers of the Philippians for the Spirit of Christ to be empowered in him so that Christ would be honored in his living and in his dying. Paul was not a man who, did not, who, who lived in the past. And I think this is so true because Paul has a past. You have a past. I have a past. We all have a past. You can't live in the past. Paul was able to forgive himself because Christ forgave him for stoning Stephen and killing other Christians. You know that Paul's first part of his ministry says, oh, hey, that's the guy that kills people. Paul was able to work past that. He did not live in the past, but he looked forward. He strained ahead. That is an important part of gospel ministry is to be able to go on. Paul said, forgetting what is behind, I press on to the high calling of Jesus Christ. If you live with guilt and regret, it's because you have not yet given it to Jesus Christ. Give it to the Lord. Yes, others may remind you but you'll be vindicated one day. And in your heart, even today, you'll have a peace that can pass all understanding. He knew that he was a new creature and that the old was gone. And he now purposed to live in a way as to to not be ashamed of the gospel, nor to do anything to be ashamed of. He fully trusted that Jesus would complete his work in the Philippians and in himself. That's why he said, I'm confident that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. that a Christian, he's going to do it in you and he's going to do it in me. He's going to do it for all believers. Do you believe that God is faithful enough and strong enough with you to complete what he started in you? I hope that you are. Because if you have no confidence, how are you living? Do you have a vision for your life? The Bible says without a vision, the people perish. Does God have a calling for you? Maybe you've been afraid to go after the calling. Maybe it's been on your heart for years. You know, I believe just there's always been this thing in me that I want, God wants me to do this, but you know what? Times are tough and I got a good paying job and I, I'm just too fearful to leave my job because, you know, how am I going to be supported? Can I tell you, loved one, if God is truly calling you to something, leap out in faith. God will be faithful. God will be faithful. And that's what he says in verse 6, chapter 1. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. See, Paul was a man of singular vision and purpose. Verses 21 and 22. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. 
What a strange verse. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I, am a, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. Understanding when Paul says to live, it means to do the ministry of the gospel, the work of Jesus Christ. He clarifies for us a little more in verses 23 to 26. He said, am I hard-pressed between the two? What a decision to make. Should I do gospel ministry or should I die and be with Jesus? That's what he's saying. Now, I would look at Paul and say, you know what? It's no-brainer, Paul. Jesus every time. Paul says, I am hard-pressed between the two. That's strong. I'm being squeezed. If you ever watched... This is how bad. The happy days, the Malachi crunch. That's what he's got. He's being pushed in on both sides. I don't know what to do. My desire is to part and to be with Christ. That's what I desire. But for you, for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh, to do the ministry of Christ, he says, is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joint of faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you. Paul said, at least the way I understand it, and I'm a simple man, I can go and be with Jesus, or I can stay here and do gospel ministry to you. What am I going to choose? You know what? I understand the gospel, Paul says. The gospel says it's all about you. I'm going to stay here and I'm going to do ministry because it's better for you. D.A. Carson, again in his book, The Basics of Believers, says this Here then is the burden of this passage. Put the gospel first. In particular, one, put the fellowship of the gospel at the center of your relationship with believers. Put the fellowship of the gospel at the center of your relationship with believers. Two, put the priorities of the gospel at the center of your prayer life. Three, put the advance of the gospel at the center of of your aspirations. And four, put the converts of the gospel at the center of your principled self-denial. Boy, that's the hard one, isn't it? To deny myself for the sake of others. To live a gospel life which says it's all about you, it's not about me. Jesus himself said this in Matthew 20, 28, For even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came because it was all about us. Was it all about obeying the Father? Absolutely it was. But how was it all about the Father? By being obedient to the Father, to making it all about us, so that in Christ we could be reconciled to God. 
This was Paul's resolve. And Paul had a request. He had a request of the church in Philippi. He says, only... Let me get a drink quick. It says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Let your manner of life is actually one Greek word. Pole etuste. I think I said it correctly. But you can even see the word polity or politics in there. It means to conduct oneself with proper reference to one's obligations in relationship to others as part of some community. It means to live, to conduct one's life, to live in relationship to others. In other words, Paul's saying, be a good citizen here on earth. Be a good citizen. Not just a good citizen of Rome, but be a good citizen of heaven here on earth. Because that's where our true citizenship is. Gordon Fee, in his commentary, says this, The verb thus means literally to live as citizens. On the other hand, by joining it with the adverbs worthily, Paul now uses the verb metaphorically, not meaning live as citizens of Rome, oh, that is not irrelevant, but rather to live in the Roman colony of Philippi as worthy citizens of your heavenly homeland. We need to understand where our citizenship is first and foremost. It is in heaven where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Paul says, only let, in verse again, 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that whether I come and see you, you are, when I come and see you or am absent, in other words, whether I get released to jail or I don't get released from jail, no matter what, that I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents, because this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. He says, live a manner, live as good citizens of heaven, so that I may hear that you are standing firm, the word stako, Literally the idea of putting a stake in the ground. In other words, that I hear that you are steadfast. You continue to be steadfast. How are they to be steadfast? How is the church today to be steadfast? One spirit with one mind. One spirit with one mind. One spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ Jesus but one spirit also in the fact that we are all on the same page when it comes to gospel ministry. We're not all going in our different directions. 
We're not a house divided against itself because a house divided against itself can what? Not stand. But we have the priority, as Paul did, as the Philippians did, of gospel ministry. To be involved in gospel ministry means to be striving side by side. Synthelo, struggle together, labor alongside. Are you striving for the gospel? Are you striving side by side with the people of Bible Baptist Church? These are questions we should ask ourselves. Because these are questions that I believe that one day when we stand before the throne of God on the great day of judgment, He's going to ask us a series of questions. I don't think it's going to be very much unlike when He said to Job, Job, stand, stand up, Job. Matter of fact, He said, Job, brace yourself like a man, which is actually saying, Job, stand up, we're going to box. We're going to have a boxing match, Job. Brace yourself like a man. And then God fires off the first question, where were you when I made the mountains? Where were you when I set the boundary of the sea? Where were you when I put the stars in heaven? And Job just like, you know, knock out, I'm done. God's going to ask us a series of questions. And by the truth of our answers, we'll either be vindicated or we'll be condemned because by your words you're justified and by your words you're condemned. Ask yourself, am I striving for the gospel? He says that they would not be afraid. He says, this is, this is what I wrote. It says, a worthy manner of life, standing firm in one spirit with one mind without fear is a clear sign of the destruction of the opponents of the gospel. It is also a clear sign of our salvation. Think about how true that is. Paul was decapitated. His head was cut off by Rome. I'm not sure, I don't believe that Paul went there cowering in fear. But he went there boldly, knowing this was the path that God had for him. And he went without fear. What did that say to those Roman soldiers? We know that Jesus went to the cross, didn't say he feared, he went willingly. He tells us, I willingly lay my life down. And his willingness to stand without fear caused the Roman soldier to say what? Truly this man was the Son of God. There was something different about the way that Jesus died as opposed to the other two guys. Was it just because he was Jesus? Well, yes, but he was also a man. And he died in full faith of his father. Not afraid of Rome. I mean, the guy who said to Pilate, you would have no power over me unless it was granted to you from above, obviously is not afraid of Rome. But when we stand, not in arrogance, but in the certainty of the gospel, it is a clear sign of the destruction of the opponents of the gospel. And it's also 
a clear sign of our salvation. And Paul makes sure to add, and that from God. We do not save ourselves. We're saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Christ alone. Paul's request for them was to stand firm, living a life worthy of the gospel, of one spirit, of one mind, standing firm. And his request was that because he had for them a reminder. This is my reminder to you, he says, verses 29 and 30. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. For it has been granted to you. Katarizomai. To give or grant graciously and generously with the implication of goodwill on the part of the giver. Wait. It has been granted to you, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe but also suffer for Him. Well, I like the believe part. Yeah, that's grace. But the suffering part is grace also? Absolutely it is. Why? Because the Bible tells me. That's why. The Bible tells me that. Paul was in prison falsely. He was going to be killed for something. He's going to be killed for the declaration of the gospel. In this world, we will suffer injustices. In this world, we'll be persecuted for the gospel. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Scripture, you know what? You can't say, well, I didn't know. No, Scripture tells us right away. Jesus told us, Matthew chapter 10, all that would happen to the apostles. If you want to live for the Lord Jesus Christ, if you want to stand for truth and morality in a culture that has rejected truth and morality, you will stand out, you will be singled out, and not in a good way, even though what you are standing for is true and good. You will be singled out by the enemy of your soul, by the forces of this world, but you will also be singled out by your heavenly Father who looks down on you and says, that's my boy. That's my girl. You're going to be vindicated one day. But I want to talk just for a minute about a suffering I don't think we think of often. When we hear of suffering, we think of persecution. We think of going in jail. We think of, uh, you know, of being beat up for the gospel or possession stolen as it was in the book of Hebrews. All of those things which the Bible tells us will be coming. But I think there's a suffering that we don't view as a grace from God. I don't know if that's the right way I said it. Well, let me just put up, it's, it's, it's the suffering of chased. Chased. That's the Old Testament word for love. Chased love, a full-on pursuit, a going after with all of me, equals suffering. Hased love 
equals suffering. I want to recommend to you a book by Paul Miller, A Loving Life in a World of Broken Relationships. And in this book, which my wife and I have been going through, he writes this, The crucible of enduring love is suffering. Of course, we don't hunt for suffering, but we can't separate suffering from love. So our journey of love has a shape to it, like a J-curve. Paul, also, Paul Miller also wrote a book called The J-Curve, where life is a dying to self to be resurrected in the Christ, a J. He says, when we understand this framework, it resets our expectations for what life is like. In Hased love, we enter into the dying resurrection life of Jesus. You really love as God loves, it will result in suffering. Jesus so loved the world that he gave himself. He suffered. There is, when you love somebody, you pursue somebody, you pursue maybe the members of your own household and they reject the gospel, is that not a suffering? Does your heart not break? And yet you pursue them. Or is the suffering or the grace that God has given to you to to Paul Miller, they, they ha- him and his wife, they have a daughter who is severely autistic. And he says it was within that suffering. Now, what do you mean, having autistic suffering? No, there's, there's a burden to care for somebody. They love their daughter, Kim. You read it, it's heartbreaking in the book. He says there's no timeouts. You can't just stop something. You want to know about Ask Sue. She can tell you. And at times, it's hard. It, there's a suffering, but there's a love within it. God loves us. He pursues us. We were broken beyond repair. Our heart was sick beyond repair. And Christ in love came, and he suffered and he died so that he could fix us. You don't think that Christ suffers with us too? When we go our own way, when we reject him and we forget him, he sits there, he's not heartbroken over it, and yet he still loves Biblical love will result in suffering. That's to be like Jesus. It is hard. And it's not just loving people who are good to you. It's loving your enemies. Jesus loved even his enemies. The vast majority of people that Jesus healed rejected him. The majority of people that Jesus fed and provided for walked away from him, and yet he loved them. We sang this morning. I didn't know, but I'm glad we did. And if this life should bring suffering, I will remember what Calvary has brought to me. God, you're so good. God, you're so good. God, you're so good. You're so good to me. Suffering 
will result in physical, maybe emotional, persecution. But there is a suffering that comes in pursuing in love, of dying to self, of saying to the person, it's all about you. And it's only about you because it's about Jesus. No wonder the Bible tells us in Romans 12, 8, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. That verse I had to put into my mind, I can't tell you how many times in caring for my dad in the end of his life. It was hard. But if you pursue in love, you may not be thanked. You may not get the accolades. You may be taken and granted for. You may be stepped on. You may be rejected. But pursue. And just a quick note, pursuing in love does not equal enabling somebody in sin, by the way. Don't enable. Never enable somebody to be in sin. Never affirm somebody in sin. But also don't hate anybody. Let me close with this. The servant saint of Christ Jesus, who partners in the Gospels, desires to serve and to not be served, considers others better than themselves, endures suffering in the pursuit of living a life worthy of the gospel for the sake of Christ. They understand the death and resurrection life of Jesus in the pursuit of loving Jesus and others. May we, to the glory of God, suffer for Jesus. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have loved us. Thank you that you pursue us. And Father, help us in this wicked and depraved world, this crooked and perverse generation, to be a people who live a life worthy of the gospel, of our citizenship in heaven. Help us to be people who pursue in love for the sake of Christ. Amen. Let's stand. Let's close in a song. And I would ask you to pray for Izzy. Izzy has a bad migraine. That's why the castaneda's left, and she's just not feeling good. Remember, those that are not involved in the, in the play but are involved in, in VBS, please stick around. Uh, Preeti's going to have a short meeting. Let's close in a doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Ah. Uh...